Alright, so we are live and hello everyone. Welcome to Invader Connection Podcast where we discuss the hottest topics, the best tips and the most interesting stories from our guests who are the real innovators in their own ecosystems and globally as well. And uh, we are very happy to have an amazing guest today uh, who's joining us live in our studio. Uh, and uh, actually, let's start. So first of all, let us introduce ourselves. Ourselves. Arvidas, would you like to go ahead? Yeah, from our beautiful studio, as Roland said. Actually, it's a meeting room we're having it right now. But all in all, yeah, it's a beautiful studio for us. So uh, all in all, yeah, I'm Arvidas. Uh, I'm an innovator by, by heart and by, by passion. So uh, I'm in, in this area for more than 10 years, working in startups, corporates, and, and all over the place. And yeah, I especially enjoy innovation management. And yeah, this is me, Roman. Great. And uh, my name is Roman. I'm Arvidas' colleague and co-host and uh, a big fan of innovation as well, particularly as it relates to the partnerships that are, can be created uh, between the companies who stand alone, you know, might not be as successful in innovation. For example, startups and corporates, governments and others. So I'm excited to also uh, be a co-host here and to meet the best innovators who we can later maybe connect to, to some of these stakeholders as well. And we have Jana with us, Jana Cook. So, you know, the one, we all, everyone we have here, I mean, we, we have only innovators, so it's nice to have you as well, another innovator. And Jana is PhD, which is already a bit of, for me, it's like innovation in PhD, it's like, oh my God, how to, how to, how, how to click them both. And then also she's co-founder and business designer at Refink. So welcome Jana and my first kind of straight away question would be you know I'm thinking and, and today I, I was thinking how to kind of know how to introduce you and I was thinking about that a bit like you know about myself how this innovation and, and my wife usually says that you know innovation is like playing games and so on and because we're joking like that of course it's not playing games but most of lots of customers kind of think about it kind so of why, you know, why PhD, innovation, <laughs> co-founder of, of, of design, service design thing. So is it the, the problem that, you know, you couldn't play a lot of the games when you was a child or, or, or what's happening here? Why you want to, to continue? And it's kind of hard path. So, yeah, welcome, Anna. Please go on. <laughs> I have never thought of my profession as a result of a childhood trauma, but probably I should reflect a bit. Uh, yeah, well, anyhow, I absolutely agree that typically an academic career and, and innovation are not something that go together. Actually, my background is in marketing, and, uh, and for, for years I worked um, in large and not so large companies, trying to sort of help them to convince customers to, to buy their products and services. So you sort of chase people and try to make them give you money in return for something that maybe they're not so excited about. Um, I'm really sorry for all the marketers, but that was kind of how my job felt at some point. So in, in some moments, I actually started researching if 
there is any practice or any tools to, to copy these lucky companies who don't need to convince anybody in anything. Because if you look at the, the big and famous and the rich ones, like well, classic examples are the, the Apple and Tesla and everything else, then somehow they, they managed to, without any marketing efforts, products or services that make customers line up at 3 a.m. in the morning, and, and really fight for, for buying one, right? So um, I was interested in how they're doing that. And this is how I got to, to service design and design thinking. And uh, somehow the most reasonable way to, to learn it seemed to be university and not just uh, in Estonia, because at that point that was a completely new thing for our region. So I, I sort of outsourced it from Nordic countries, which were a lot more advanced at, at that point. And uh, that's how the PhD happened. So this is my way of, of learning the tools and practices. And in the parallel, I started offering that competence to different companies uh, all over Baltics uh, at that point. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's how I got here. <laughs> okay, so everyone who wants to, to be innovative should study PhD. Yeah? Well, not necessarily, but uh, for, for some reason at that particular moment there was no other way to, to get that knowledge uh, anywhere around. Because when you just went to, uh, to any large corps and uh, started talking about design thinking, customer-driven innovation, they essentially thought that you are crazy and, and just disturbing the work. So, <laughs> so uh, the best practices in, in real world were still yet to happen. It's like this Lego, I still remember this kind of Lego picture when, you know, someone, uh, people are trying to, to, to kind of go in the car, but the wheels are not like wheels, but they're in, in squares, and then someone is bringing them the wheel, and they're saying, no, no, we don't need it. I mean, please don't let us kind of, you know, disturb our work, so go away with that one. So, yeah. It's unfortunately still something that happens in plenty of organizations. Maybe not that robust mode, but, but still is. But uh, what do you think of this uh, starting this innovation path? So for you, it took degrees, knowledge, experience in marketing that was not so great. But uh, right now, is there an easier way for people who want to become innovators or, you know, who see themselves as innovators to start off and, you know, get there? Essentially, like, don't get me wrong, all these practices from the, the more you sort of see and the more you, you see others succeeding, that essentially this is nothing more than common sense, really, which in large companies, unfortunately, is not that common. So. Uh, you really can learn that by doing, absolutely. Uh, you definitely can gain that experience, uh, you know, going around and seeing things. But I think one thing that is essential, really, is that um, you need to try to get experiences from very different fields. Because this is the problem very often with uh, different companies, what stops or blocks innovation. Or for many experts who work in-house and, and kind of lack the, the full capabilities to really turn it around is that they have only seen one field or one kind of narrow angle to it. So the way to, to kind of really, without all the school system supports to, to learn it, is to really go out and try uh, and explore different fields, different companies, different startups, as well as corporates. And uh, essentially, innovation is not 
much else than taking something from one context and implementing it into the other. So to get that or to get there, you, you need to get this different context. Right. I mean, that's the kind of the argument where people do MBAs at these Ivy League schools and pay hundreds of thousands, right, uh, for, for this degree. Maybe better is to take this hundred thousand and try to invest into your own idea, try to start your own business. Maybe you fail, but at the, at the end of the day, you can actually learn so much more than you know the books and the case studies of these professors will give you. Or do it like you, Robin did. I mean, starting if you want to start with financials, first of all, start and go to work in construction work. I remember when you <laughs> shared that story in one of the hackathons as well. True. Well, I also started selling tractors, so we can, you know. Okay. Go. <laughs> all right. So yeah, let's we go tractors. <laughs> we, we can far back, but essentially, I don't think that one kind of eliminates the other because, well, one thing is getting experience, and the other, the other thing is the analytical skill because you mm. can experience a lot of stuff, but if you don't really, kind of get the the capability to to analyze it, to learn from your mistakes, and to actually do things better the next time, then it's not as useful. You just burn through the money and the time and, and learn nothing. So mm -hmm. I, I, I don't quite support the idea that school is completely useless. As Having a PhD, you, you have to say that. You know, <laughs> you okay. Yeah, interesting term. We didn't know about tractors. Of course, we would prepare more questions about it, but we can Google. Meanwhile, <laughs> I hope there is, it was a long time ago, so I hope there is no tractor. <laughs> okay, so but let's maybe jump from tractors to fintech a bit as well. So this is a different, different area, financial technologies. But a lot of your experience around that, you worked in a CB, mm -hmm. now you're also supporting lots of customers who are in banking area. So why fintechs? Why financial technologies? Is it something super nice? Is it because we pay a lot of money? What's, what's the reason? Uh, well, actually, fintechs, um, alongside with health sector and uh, also with public sector, they're the largest consumers of um, uh, at least service design consultancy. I'm not sure about the uh, innovation in general, but when it comes to customer-driven innovation, they're the, the biggest kind of uh, clients that are on the market. And it's not just me saying that. There has been some research that has been done across the world. Uh, telcos are coming close, but these three are kind of the, the biggest um, who are interested in, in customer-driven innovation. And I think the reason behind that, this is purely my theory, but the reason behind that is probably that if you look at these fields historically, then um, they have been designed around professional perspective, right? So the banks mm -hmm. have been working from the perspective, how do we make this work and how do we keep our money? Uh, the uh, public sector has been always working around how the you know, bureaucracy could function in, in the best way for the state and, you know, customers or people come second. And uh, medicine as well, it's all about doctors and not about the patients. So at some point, uh, I'm guessing that probably either the competition or the market standards or startups kicking in really created this pressure of uh, taking care of the customer as well. So at some point, they started paying attention to feedback and, and really looking into how we could make this more useful and more usable. And, and this is how I think uh, the banks got there. 
because um, if you look at all the other sectors, as they have popped up relatively more recently, and uh, it has been a competitive market for, for the same cellcos, for example, they always, like since the beginning, they had to compete. So it has been a little bit different market situation for them, but uh, for the for the banks, for a long time, it has been a very convenient life, and there has been no need as such to pay attention to anybody else besides themselves. I mean, these fintechs that are created, you know, they are also disrupting the banks, and I feel like the banks now have no choice but but to adapt, isn't it? Because if you look at the banks, even let's say in France, uh, I returned recently from France, and it was almost impossible to open a bank account. Like just opening an account at BNP Paribas. You come in, there is some sort of uh, process that takes 10 million years. Mm -hmm. And actually, at the end of the day, you cannot use the card because you forgot to type in the pen within five days of receiving the card, which I didn't know was the rule. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, I mean, all these like crazy regulations, when you compare it to digital banks, and when you now see the startups providing loans, transactions, uh, possibilities, and other things, I guess the banks have to adapt. Otherwise, you know, they will be obsolete. Kind of true. Uh, then again, uh, if you talk to the banks, then uh, probably that I think that the fear is actually is actually reducing time because at some point, if you would think like a few years ago, there has been a lot of talk in, in banking industry about how oh my God, Ravel is coming and taking over, and uh, since it has been quite some time over over the years, I think we we already see the trend that. You know, the biggest, uh, as the most profitable thing for the banks is not daily banking. It's not the cards, it's not the, the transactions that you pay your friends 20 euros for lunch, right? So, so the main profit actually comes from somewhere else. And so far, at least, the fintechs are not jumping at that part. So I think there is a bit of decline of, of that fear in fintechs. However, yes, they still kind of are looking towards innovation because what, what this disruption by startups caused is actually that banks are competing between themselves, right? Because uh, all the big ones started creating the innovative features, all the, the uh, well, the, even the basic things that you, you, until very, very recently, at least in Estonia, one of the big players did not provide the Apple Pay option, right? So now, two months ago, it finally launched, but, but there's a whole bunch of people who already left because they were looking to, to, you know, to pay with a watch somewhere else. So um, I think what, what this startup wave kind of cost is also the innovation competition between the big banks or big market players as well. But, you know, this is a very interesting angle. I mean, I never thought about it, but, you know, it can go lower with interest in, in this innovation. I also worked for a, in, 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 in a bank as well for a while, so I'm just thinking, is it a different generation? Is it like a generational question? Is it like millennials, not millennials, maybe Gen Zs or alphas right now, yeah, appearing. So maybe they will change it, or do you think that, you know, it will still be status quo and, and banks will have, like, uh, like all those, because I, I'm interested in this question in a way. Maybe someone is listening from different sectors, but this is also always the question for a sector: Do I need to pursue this innovation, or maybe you know I'm okay and I can still live 100 years without it? So now banks are in this kind of situation. You are here. So so how do you see the future? 
Well, I, I think that for large corporates, uh, the, the old large corporates, not the new ones, right? So it's quite hard to be the forerunner. It's it, you really need to. I don't even know what to change what because there's a whole bunch of limitations, half of which is imaginary to be to be honest. Like very often, I mean, I probably I don't remember Arvidas if you remember that that discussion that we once had in in the bank. Let's not name any names, but that there is there was absolutely no way to have on on your bank card to have. CVC or this uh, three number codes on the same sides as the, the card number for the security reasons. And if you look at the bankers today, ta-da, for the machine learning like, uh, reading purposes, it's all on the same side, right? So like half of these limitations are imaginary, and that's just a small thing. But, uh, but also they, they're playing in a very tight field. I think it's very hard to find any area of of business really where you don't have the limitations whether it's technical legal whatever else so it's quite hard to be the forerunner to 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 really reinvent the field if you're a large corporation in a sense but that of course doesn't mean that you need to stay reluctant that you need to stay kind of behind because essentially maybe your customers will not leave today if you if you don't keep the pace but they will leave eventually because well people definitely get used to good things very fast and since different uh, companies and startups are introducing these good things they kind of start expecting it from from everybody else as well so i would say that the trend is that um, probably there is no need to try, try to outrun this innovation train, but there's definitely a very big pressure to, to keep up and to react to the markets and, and to react to, to trends really in a fast way, not like three years after things happen, but really keeping the pace. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, you, you also seem quite optimistic of corporates innovating and corporates uh, kind of trying to change the way they work and, you know, overcoming these things. And we've heard uh, our mutual acquaintance actually share the story that uh, large incumbents, corporates, they have this immune system and this immune system against innovation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when there is something disruptive coming in, they try to kill it internally because they understand, oh my God, this is something foreign. It's like a foreign object in my body. How do I destroy it as quickly as possible? So what do you think separates corporates with this strong immune system against innovation from corporates that, you know, try to innovate in your opinion. So that's that's actually a very good way to describe it because I've had countless meetings where there's one one kind of example or real life example that comes to mind when we had a very high level management of a banking group in the room and they were like looking at us in a way that yeah this innovation thing looks super cool but can you do it when i retire it's like five years past like you know can you hold it back you know, things off yeah sort of so well yes absolutely there is uh, there is this um immunity or or i mean essentially not a single human being wants to to go out of the comfort zone and, and do things differently right so we're all lazy and we kind of choose the easy way out if it's possible. Uh, however, 
I mean, what, what makes the difference is the actual commitment of, of the management. So I have, uh, uh, the reason why I maybe talk about large corporates so much is because recently, in recent years, this is like what the types of companies that I have been working uh, the most with. Uh, typically, they're genuinely kind of interested in creating the change, but the difference between the successful cases and not so successful is whether the management is prepared to make their decisions based on looking forward and really realizing that it might incorporate a bit of a risk uh, in there and not everything might go as planned, or the management is basically basing their decisions or on whatever would keep their job. So there are like two ways of doing it. And probably in corporates, I mean, just a reflection as well from my side as well, probably it's kind of hard because usually the founder or the owner is not the CEO anymore. So the CEO are hard people and they kind of, you know, think like you said, like in five years I'm retired. And by the way, the question is, did you kind of said, okay, we will come back in five years. So that was a different deal. Important thing. Why? Why um, the big ones? It doesn't have to be the corporate. It, it, you can be also a big startup, and it becomes very hard to stay dynamic and stay innovative. Is uh, the reason of having too many resources? Because if you are a poor small startup, you, you essentially don't have enough money to do stupid things for a long time. Right? So it doesn't work. You need to change. You need to try something new. If you're a large organization, you probably have enough buffer to go on with some really useless thing, useless idea or the service that does not work. You have the opportunity to keep it up for, for far, far longer, right? So and there are examples of that really from pretty much every industry where it, your customer would say on day one that, you know, close it, it does not work, but for some reason the company keeps putting in the money into marketing or development, hoping that maybe this time around or in this iteration it would actually work. So um, I think that this having too many resources is also kind of an issue. Mm -hmm. It's not that you touch the sphere topic as well. Uh, you know, it seems for me, at least, maybe I'm too much into this innovation, but everyone is talking about failures right now. Oh, it's, it's okay to, to have failures. So, you know, one part of the question would be maybe we have some example and another part of the question is it really happening is it really kind of customers are thinking failures are okay or they're just pretending to, to i think it's uh, i think it's um, actually similar as with everybody talking about customer centricity and if you start looking into whether they're really basing the, their decisions and, and really working with customers to, to develop product services. It's just the declarative thing mostly. The same thing is with, with this failure culture. Like everybody's talking about it, so it's kind of the, the trendy thing to talk. And it's like if you ask somebody if you're accepting failure, it's socially not acceptable to answer that you are not, right? So you have to kind of nod and, and pretend that you, you actually are okay with it. But when you look at how companies behave and how they react to lost budgets, how people are actually worried of, you know, if something is promised in an Excel table or a PowerPoint slide, you have to deliver on it, even if halfway through you realize that it's something that is not working. So 
it's a lot of a mindset issue, which um, I would say is still in sort of baby shoes because uh, mm. we, we are definitely talking about it and it's polite to say that, uh, you know, we, we, we are doing that. Just it's, as it's polite to say that, yes, of course, I recycle my garbage at home. And uh, in, in practice, well, it still happens in different ways. Uh, totally, totally agree with you. Uh, any, you know, from one point of view, I kind of agree because if it is CFO's responsibility, and you know, especially for public trade company, it's kind of you know we need to, to to manage this money. But maybe when you have some good examples, so what you do with your customers? How you manage that? Do they have a failure budget? Because I also heard this from one of our our friends that some companies have failure budget. Or, or what's the way to address this kind of issue? Somehow, I have to admit that uh, with many customers with whom we have this talk, they're not quite prepared to to really risk it in a way. So how we have been approaching it mostly so far is that we try to run experiments that are essentially free. So uh, companies are a bit more open in investing time. So that is something that we can usually work with. And uh, when you talk about the budget part, then uh, it's not something they're willing to gamble on, or it has to be really, really minor to, to make sure that the experiment runs. But uh, yeah, this is something that we suggest and we strongly recommend them to do. We give um, the, the time limitation saying that it, it is either three weeks or three months or something like this. Uh, many companies also see problem with this kind of experimentation. They also see the risk with um, like what damage would it do to the brand if we, we, we don't get too successful with it. So this is, uh, this is something that I think many companies address with either doing uh, anonymous experiments, which sometimes work, sometimes don't. And uh, I have also seen that uh, recently, at least in, in uh, the companies that we work with, uh, there is a trend of outsourcing experiments to startups, meaning that some sort of business idea is uh, piloted in a startup form, and in case it actually proves itself, then they either acquire, or if it was from the beginning, sort of a startup of, of a company, they, they kind of bring it in, into business. So uh, I would say that the, the, the price tag of failure is still a little bit a sensitive issue for most, as far as I've talked to the, the customers about it, but uh, they're definitely they're definitely becoming more convinced to try. So that's definitely a breakthrough. So this experimentation culture is, is slowly but surely kicking in. That makes sense. And, and from what you mentioned, uh, how they delegate this responsibility and this risks to the startups, we are noticing that as well with our, with us, with our projects, because the corporates, you know, normally for them to make decisions it takes some time and a lot of signatures a lot of uh, agreements with the management and the, the number of layers of management they normally have is a little bit crazy so uh, so you know and with the startups they can move quickly they have the speed they have the this creativity maybe maybe it's a good idea so so you think that the co collaborations with corporates and startups you know that's a good idea and that should continue and uh, if so how would you how would you see that happening normally? Is it uh, corporates running their own small accelerators internally, where they incentivize either internal teams to create startups or, or attract them? 
Do you see, you know, accelerators collaborating with corporates or, uh, I mean, what are your thoughts on the topic? How, how can it move forward so that more corporates actually use those solutions and become innovative? Well, I think at the moment, if you look at the market, right, so I think there is pretty much not much collaboration happening because uh, mostly it's either, uh, well, option one would be buying products or services from startups. Option two would be supporting them in whatever form, whether it's an accelerator or just giving them cash for, for whatever development purposes. But there's really no co-creation happening. So that's, that's I think, is, is an issue. I, I'm not quite convinced if it's something that needs to happen necessarily. If there has to be a, this kind of really merging or, or joint value creation or whatever it is, um, maybe it makes sense for them to start stay separate because that way the market would actually regulate itself better because one sort of create pressure and the others uh, you know, keep up and, and feel and actually have the funds to kind of develop and feel further. But uh, in, in general, I think this collaboration thing is a little bit um, hard, at least at the moment, because if you look at, at how startups operate, uh, well, you, you don't really need a long time to make decisions. You have an idea, you have some sort of um, Prove that this idea of work, and you go and try that, right? Uh, whether for corporates uh, or for larger organizations, even if they say that they're agile and quick in their decision making, that typically probably the record would be still like four weeks of, of discussion, right? Which for startups is light years because you have already gone bankrupt by that. But, but so. not eight anymore, so four, so at least twice, you know. <laughs> has gone down from half a year, right? So, but still, so uh, I think there is a bit of too much crash or clash of um, uh, these cultures and priorities in a sense that it's really uh, maybe too much to expect them to really collaborate anytime soon. But uh, what I think is a little bit of a danger is this, uh, again, this declarative uh, declarative kind of collaboration that happens in, in many forms in the accelerator programs which are very often used simply for PR purposes mm -hmm. from, from the corporate side because you get to put your logo on something and communicate that you're supporting, I don't know, green tech or whatever it is that you're supporting and uh, when you look at the essence of things there's not much actual work happening behind it's mostly for the promotion and drinking champagne and, and you know having fancy events so i think this is kind of the, the danger that might be also blocking this collaboration from happening because if it's just PR, just talk and no action, then what it creates is a huge uh, disappointment in people who after a couple of rounds of this kind of program would say that, yeah, we tried that innovation thing, it didn't work, so it's useless, let's go back to doing business as usual. And to be honest, having seen companies with mindset like this or kind of with disappointment like that, there is no coming out of it. Like you, you literally have to fire like third, one third of your company and, and bring in new people with, with fresh view to, to try again. Or perhaps you bring the new CEO and then he makes sure that they, they change their minds. Like with, with some of these companies, doesn't it happen that, you know, the CEO is the driver? Absolutely. And then 
Absolutely, it's, it's uh, the top management uh, buy-in or belief is actually something that's uh, for, yeah, the top, right? for the whole company. For sure, because well, if your boss stops uh, demanding the old school KPIs and, and the uh, you know commitment to the Excel table that was agreed in uh, in January to kind of you know keep track during the year. If, if there is some sort of new approach or, or new way to evaluate the efficiency of work, this is where it all starts from. So, uh, and then what kind of arguments the CEO is listening to, whether it's the financial calculations or financial prognosis, which is essentially like, you know, tarot cards probability in the sense that, you know, well, probably the last few years have shown pretty well that you can have all the uh, all the prognosis that you want. What happens in the industry is, you know, a lottery in a sense, and it can all blow up in your face in a matter of months. Uh, but um, yeah, or or the uh, the CEO would actually listen to like, or would ask you if you have talked to your customer about that idea. So I've, uh, I'm happy to say that quite a few companies actually already have the mindset of uh, of uh, asking or or before any new project or idea or development is being presented to the management, they actually require not so much the the business case for it, but how they actually require the, the customer feedback or experiment results or something that actually brings uh, feedback from the market, not so much the fictional numbers somewhere in the PowerPoint. Perfect. Music to it all, yes, I would say. No, I, I just want to reflect on one thing. When you said that so many companies, corporates just going for PR reasons, I think Ramon, we need to find these companies because all the companies all come to our. Events. Okay, because Great. all the companies <laughs> comes to our accelerator, they seem to interested only the pilots, and then we have problems to invite them to all these events. I'm saying, no, no, we don't want to. So, but yeah, so it's it's mm. it's also funny how how things are happening. Okay, I think that you know one thing which is also super interesting. Maybe coming a bit to the end as well. Uh, this future predictions, and you know. Everyone wants to understand so how what things will happen in the future. So you know maybe you see also some interesting technologies or maybe some companies or maybe some trends are happening which you think okay. If you're especially if you're a corporate, if you are someone you know innovating somewhere maybe in, in your garage or maybe in your corporate sitting <laughs> and thinking okay, I need to change something. So you know maybe these ideas would help mm -hmm. people to to boost themselves. So do you see something interesting? Well, I think that all the buzzwords, of course, are there, like the trends, if you just, I don't know, open tech crunch or whatever else, you would see all the, all the magical words like AI and everything. But I think what is very interesting trend um, recently is that it seems that companies start to rethink what innovation is or what exactly you need to innovate. So if uh, in the very beginning, or like 10 years ago, everybody was talking about this huge change that needs to happen, that you need to go, you know, really big and innovation is something really wow. Uh, then what I see at the moment is that um, companies started working with really 
minor details, what, what may look like minor details and innovating the small stuff. And as I said, that innovation essentially is common sense, right? You do what is, what is kind of reasonable and not, not doing weird corporate stuff, but you actually look at it from a human perspective. So I think the main trend that is actually happening is that uh, plenty of companies are starting to fix these little kind of stumbling stones in, in service offerings so that uh, there is not so much of the stupid stuff, as you said, in the French bank that you need to fill some sort of millions of forms that are essentially not needed or that you don't need to activate your PIN in three days. I was just a few days ago in, in the UK, and, and apparently there, if you want to start using the app for, for a bank, you need to go to a branch office so that the employee of your bank would activate it for you. I myself wanted to start using the app for uh, gas station. to do that. Uh, how to do otherwise? Especially if you, if you travel around, you know. Absolutely. And, and I, I needed to start using the app for the gas station, like to, to pay for, for uh, fuel. And I had to fill a PDF and digital and send it off to, you know, to get the access to the app. So, well, this kind of, fixing this kind of unreasonable things that are part of this large offering is actually the trend that I've seen. So maybe the understanding of what needs to be innovated is kind of going from this huge and unrealistic scale into really into practical and improving these little things that really make a big difference. Okay, so uh, I guess now we asked a lot of questions. You didn't what, want any answers. Yeah, we, we've got a lot of answers. You, you know, and I like many things actually. And maybe to summarize some of the things which I'm also taking off the taking off of this meeting, one of them I really like, I mean, and I will think I will use it also this uh, you know, trying to about failures. This part I really love that you said that you know we are outsourcing the failures to startups. So this is one of the ways to, to look at that, that process as well, because I think that you know. The failures is, is it's always happening, like as you said, in the beginning we all accept, say, yeah, we accept failures, but when you show, say, okay, show us the, the budget or whatever, so what's happening, then they're not, you know, they say, oh, yeah, but of course we are not public, this company, we need to follow the rules, so this outsourcing, it's, it's kind of interesting, interesting aspect, so for me, this is the, the key takeaway from, from what you said, actually. For sure, and overall, it's also interesting how you think because I mean, this PhD education I think also kicks in a bit because uh, we start talking about something a bit smaller, and then you say, well, and this affects the market this way, and then if you think about it this way and this way and this way, and, you know, it's it's super interesting to hear thoughts of a person with this academic background but a true practitioner because then you actually get a lot of insights about uh, about the world, not just a particular use case that you asked about. So, uh, so, yeah, it was super interesting, actually. And we always ask uh, our guests, I mean, about some books, podcasts, or Netflix series. I know that you have Netflix. And you pay for <laughs> So, you know, maybe you, you have something to recommend. The ones who don't have PhD yet, you know, maybe they will have one day, but how to become wiser without even PhD. Well, actually, there, there is plenty of books. I, I don't even know if I if I can recommend anything very specific because there is a really, really one, no, <laughs> not really secret ones, but just there is a very long list. But um, I think for for innovators or for anybody working with, I mean, it doesn't have to be innovation. It just can be your own startup with, with any sort of idea. But 
what is essential about anything that you do is to try to understand how people think, how people or your customers would, would think. So any type of book that is focusing on the decision-making process or how people evaluate the products and services or anything really, how they uh, how they uh, understand or make sense for themselves if something is good or bad or, or whatever it is. I think this kind of topic that really is helpful for for uh, the um, anybody who's working with design thinking, innovation, whatever the buzzword is, because if you just go through the examples of uh, of success stories, I mean, of course, it's interesting to listen to even uh, the the podcasts about how Netflix was established and how you know how it all worked. But this is a great story, but it's somebody else's story, and there is no way you could replicate it. So, oh, trust me, I just can tell you the story of how Netflix was started better than a Netflix founder. Well, I'm sure, I mean, you know, because you actually get paid for that, right? So, um, the, uh, I think there is, of course, it's an entertaining thing to, to, um, to read, this kind of examples of how somebody has done it, or how some company was started, how they succeeded, and so on. But that, unfortunately, has very little potential of helping you particular particularly with yours, right? so you, you need to kind of do a step. Unless you want to start in this, the second Netflix world one, yeah, that, that would for sure work out great. Uh, <laughs> highly recommended. <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday, I met a company whose name is Tesla Pay, okay. which is some sort of fintech. Okay. And uh, I asked, so are you a subsidiary? Like, did Elon invest. I mean, what's the situation? To be honest, you know, it's just thought of a name that would sound good. And, you know, what better thing than Tesla? They might be sued, but, you know, as we discussed today, I mean, sometimes it's good to be sued. Yeah. Sometimes you just no get famous, right? <laughs> exactly. so, and, and uh, yeah, after that, that, you can change the name, and everybody will definitely know who you are. Yeah. So, yeah, well, that's a good strategy. Why not? Why not? Of course. Uh, you mentioned the books about uh, human behavior and how you know clients think. There is a book that came to my mind, which is not at all. I mean, not really about business. It's thinking fast and slow, yeah. which is about this guy, Israeli psychologist, who became a Nobel Prize winner in, in economics. Right. So, uh, so yeah, I actually really enjoy those books as well because they actually teach you how people think in different situations, and and you kind of think of all these biases of, of the way they think and. Uh, it can actually sometimes help you even in business decisions. Absolutely. And there's really, if, if you look at the business section of any bookstore these days, there's a whole, um, it, it, it is a very trendy topic. So there is a whole shelf usually of different mm. those. So Nudge is one of the famous right. ones, right? There is more um, that basically explain how, how human brain works what you pay attention to, and that's actually, typically that would give you plenty of ideas for your own startup as well, how to either research the, the customers you're planning to address, or how to really think from their perspective when designing something, because I think this is the, the critical part to, uh, to really maintain for anybody, and not just to try to copy Tesla or whatever else it is. 
I mean, the documentaries about Elon Musk are very interesting, but I'm not, I have become a better person after watching them, so I'm, like, I'm not sure it's very helpful, but it's mm -hmm. definitely very entertaining. Right. And I know you mentioned this, uh, I mean, the idea of learning more about the customers and the people from the books, and those books were written, I mean, Richard Taylor and uh, Daniel Kahneman and all these uh, behavioral economists, they were all academics. You know, they had absolutely no experience in business, so there really is a place in the world also for academics to contribute to action, right? <laughs> if you think about it, then social science is actually a very exciting field to be an academic in, because this is the place where you get to do experiments on humans legally. So, if that's your goal, absolutely. Like, you, you, I mean, the, the experiments typically these people do are a lot of fun. It's even fun to read the, about them, not just mm -hmm. them. So, uh, yeah, for yeah. Amazing. I, I don't support it. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I haven't read so many books in, in that area, but, but yeah, I will have a list right now to do. Uh, okay, so for, for, for the last, last thing, I mean, as the, we have you as a guest, and thank you for, for spending this one hour with us. So maybe, you know, we can have some, some word to you as well in, in the way that, you know, maybe you are searching for employees or maybe you're searching for new customers. So you can shout here and, you know, if, 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 if you feel this, this is relevant. So. Well, the, well, the customers are always welcome. I mean, you <laughs> can't ever say no. But actually, big banks, yeah? Big, big banks, big anything. But <laughs> Especially the ones who want to retire in five years. Yes, if there is a management member that plans to, you know, retire anytime soon. But jokes aside, actually, the, the, I have no idea who would be listening to this. But um, since I'm really curious about the innovation community and more specifically the, the design thinking or service design community in Baltics. And somehow for for many, many years, uh, the Lithuanian one has been pretty tiny. However, I know that in recent years, many companies here, around here as well started hiring um, in-house service designers. So I would be really curious to, uh, to see if, if, if there's anyone who wants to kind of bounce a little bit some ideas of how it's going and how it's working because this, um, let's say, the design-driven or customer-centricity maturity is a very interesting topic to, to see how it's developing. I would say that right now Nordics and maybe hopefully Estonia are doing pretty good. We're not super advanced yet, but we're some, somewhere maybe a bit higher on this ladder. So if, uh, if this revolution is slowly kicking off here as well, I would be super curious to, to know how it's going. And what's the best way to reach you? LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter? Yes, Googling me probably would also give my home address or something, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sticking to LinkedIn. Okay, okay. Well, you know, Jana is also very smart. She said, if there is anybody working for a big corporate inside as a design thinking specialist, please reach out. So, you know, she's already trying to steal the employees and then the, the corporates are left alone, so they have to hire Jana. Unfortunately, uh, it's, it's typically the other way around that uh, somehow the uh, the companies that we have been working with uh, eventually they uh, start uh, 
hiring in-house uh, service designers or innovators with, with whatever position and the first place they turn to is typically we think team and sometimes they actually succeed. <laughs> okay, okay, so don't do that, don't do that. <laughs> Whoever listens, we think team team live out. It's off the list. Really, really great job. So, uh, yeah. Only as suppliers, not as employees. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, uh, probably that's it for today. And uh, for everyone, we really enjoyed it. And I hope you enjoyed as well. And, uh, you know, next episodes will also come soon. And follow us on LinkedIn as well. Not. There will not be our home addresses, I hope, here. <laughs> if this if this gets any views or listens, you know, we might post ours address just so we can stop by for tea. <laughs> just for barbecue, you know, with some some some, some amazing people. Yeah, I'm almost ready for, for this kind of experience as well. Super. So thank you to all the listeners. Find us on Spotify under the name Innovators in Action and uh, have a beautiful day. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Thank you.